So I'd like to uh, ask us to uh, think about how we enter into silence. How we know how the word, the mantra, leads us into silence as the work of silence. But also we can expand that because there are other ways in the various traditions, like parables or koans, which also, maybe not so deeply or intensely, but also lead us, point us towards silence. So here's a little parable from the uh, Buddhist uh, tradition. A man traveling across a field <clears throat> comes across a tiger. And being a wise man, he runs away from the tiger. But the tiger, being hungry, chases the man. Then the man comes to the edge of a precipice and he catches hold of a wild vine and swings himself over the precipice. The tiger comes to the edge and looks down on him, sniffing him. And the man looks down to quite a long drop and sees another tiger there <laughs> licking its lips. Only the vine was saving him. And then he notices that two mice, one white, one black, start eating away at the vine. Then he saw a lovely strawberry growing just within reach. And holding on to the vine with one hand, he stretched out with the other to pluck the strawberry and eat it. And how sweet it tasted. It's supposed to make you silent, not love. Let's uh, see how that leads us into silence. So we'll look at another parable, more familiar one, a little later. So I was saying this morning how silence always takes us, the work of silence, always takes us to a deeper level of stillness, which we experience uh, throughout all aspects and all moments of our life, not only 
in the meditation period. We have to think twice about what we mean by experience when we think about meditation and the experience of meditation, uh, the experience of silence. We have to think what experience means in this context. John Main, as you know, uh, taught that meditation is a way of experience. Not experiencing the experience, but of pure experience. What's the difference between pure experience and experiencing, remembering, analyzing, thinking about something that happened to us? The deeper our silence, the deeper our stillness, the more we realize this distinction, this all-important distinction. For anyone on a contemplative journey, we are all on a contemplative journey, this is a very important distinction. Thinking about silence disconnects us from silence. Observing what is happening sets us at a distance from what is happening. Some years ago, uh, a neurologist uh, called Jill Bolt-Taylor was uh, working out at home in the morning and had a realized, or didn't realize at first, that she was having a stroke. But as the, uh, uh, the stroke uh, <clears throat> developed, and she realized that her ordinary uh, mental functions, uh, such as motion and speech and memory and self-awareness, were shutting down, she eventually realized that what was happening took her a long time just to learn again how to type, uh, press the, you know, to call an ambulance. It took her seven years to recover her full uh, functions. Although she said that the process of recovery released uh, a torrent of creative energy from her, the right hemisphere of her brain. It was the left hemisphere that was affected by the stroke. And even in that initial period of the stroke, she flipped from right to left hemisphere. When she was in the left hemisphere, which is where our culture is largely and obsessively situated, and how we are largely conditioned. In the left hemisphere, she was in a state of total panic. But that panic could disappear in an instant. She would flip back into a state of peace and serenity, and with a sense of the most wonderful harmony and everything was right, everything would be okay. So she flipped back between these two 
two hemispheres. There's a long book uh, that gives a little bit more insight into that called um, The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist, uh, who has summarized uh, the research over the past 20 years into the different functions of these two hemispheres of the brain. The left hemisphere, basically, uh, putting it very simply, but I think it's true, he says these two hemispheres of the brain work together in everything that we do. They are both important, but there is a world of difference between them. They are not equal, in a sense. One is the master, one is the emissary. Well, our left hemisphere is actually the, uh, the emissary, the messenger, but thinks it is the master now. <laughs> Try to get your airline reservation changed and you will realize who is the master. <laughs> the left hemisphere of the brain is uh, expert at receiving uh, information, processing that information, and creating models of reality out of it. I'm slowly beginning to find my way around the campus. So a little model is being constructed uh, by, you know, the immediate experience, including mistakes, when I take the wrong turning, and then the next time I hope I won't take the wrong turning, because it has been remembered and put into the model, uh, the little map of the campus that is slowly constructing, and by the time I leave here, it will just about be perfect. So, uh, but the left, but uh, when we are stuck in the left hemisphere, we are in a state of mind which is probably going to mean that we defend our view of the world and we don't say sorry and we don't admit mistakes and we hang on to this model of reality uh, as long as we possibly can. And the left hemisphere of the brain, uh, according to McGilchrist, kind of rather looks down upon the right hemisphere as a kind of rather flaky, fringe type of thing, you know, <laughs> that likes meditation, <laughs> or poetry, or massage, or herbal remedies, <laughs> things like that. So, but actually, the research that has been done, thanks to our development of precision measurements in the last 20 years, allows us to see that it's the right hemisphere of the brain that is actually in the flow of reality. It actually is in touch with reality as it is at the source, the single reflex. And it sends, it, it can uh, process uh, and build models of reality, but it hasn't got time, so it sends it to the left hemisphere of the brain and says, uh, file this away for me. But then the left hemisphere is supposed to send it back to the right hemisphere of the brain for it to use when necessary. That's the, the model that's being constructed. The first half of the book is a, is a wonderful, fascinating description of this uh, research of how our minds or our brains work. And the second half of the book is a cultural uh, investigation of what, is, what has happened 
over the centuries, particularly in Western culture, or Westernized culture, when the left hemisphere of the brain takes over and hijacks and sees itself as the master. So this is, uh, this is a, uh, something that's paralleled, I think, uh, by the Martha and Mary story. Martha and Mary are sisters. They aren't really judged one greater than the other. But Jesus does say to Martha, what does he say to Martha? Mary has chosen the better part, however we interpret that. But it does suggest that Mary, the symbol of contemplation, the symbol of being in the flow in the present moment, in direct contact with reality through her listening, that Mary is kind of the uh, sign that being comes before doing. Of course, if you be, you have to do. So being and doing are two sides of a coin, but being inevitably comes before doing. Mary has chosen the better part. And the whole of our mystical theological tradition sees contemplation as the source of creation. God said the word, God called it into being and saw that it was very good. But also contemplation is the goal of creation, of our own existence. This is what we're created for. So in different ways, I think we can see the same fundamental wisdom and insight, which science is illustrating, not proving, but it's illustrating it, that, uh, that we live with on a daily basis. Patricia Ng, uh, who is dying of uh, cancer about 15 years ago, I suppose now, in Singapore, uh, took part in a conversation which is online, you can watch. Uh, it's a very beautiful conversation in which she speaks about <coughs> her journey from panic to peace. And she is diagnosed with cancer and uh, terminal four can uh, stage four cancer. And <laughs> terminal four is in London. Uh, stage, <laughs> stage four cancer. And how she, uh, she went into a state of panic but, and would flip-flop occasionally from panic to peace. But increasingly, the peace took over. And this, this is something you can see in the way she, she speaks and the lightness and the depth, lightness of, of her humor and of her, her joy, and also the depth of her seriousness about what she had discovered. And it led to the, her remarkable statement, I would willingly have gone through everything that I've been through again in order to learn what I have learned. So, so this makes us uh, think a little bit more deeply about the meaning of silence and the silence of God. Uh, 
How many of you saw the film Silence uh, with, who was it, the Scorsese's film? Not very, no, I didn't see it. I haven't seen it actually, but I reread the book uh, when the film came out. And um, it, was, uh, it was very interesting. I'd, I'd read it 20 years ago and I'd, I'd forgotten it really. Uh, but the main plot of the book by this Japanese novelist Endo is uh, set in Japan in the 17th century when the uh, Christians were being persecuted by the new emperor and uh, a Portuguese Jesuit, Father Ferreira, yeah? Ferreira goes out uh, to Japan to, uh, to find out if uh, another Jesuit, who had been his teacher, had actually um, betrayed the faith, as rumor uh, said. So <clears throat> the book is, is primarily about Father Ferreira's uh, crisis of faith as he discovers the, uh, the, 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 the cruelty of the persecution carried out against the ordinary simple villagers and the persecutors were using the torture and execution of the prisoner of the of the peasants to uh, force him and other Jesuits to change to 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 betray their faith and uh, as this uh, crisis uh, develops he becomes more and more disillusioned and uh, challenged by what he calls the silence of God. And he can see no explanation for this, no reason given, no message is being given by God to explain or to console or to encourage. That he's just on his own facing this uh, terrible dilemma. And in the end, he does... Uh, renounce his Christian faith and survives in order to, uh, well, in order to survive uh, and, and in order also to save the, the peasants who were being tortured by the uh, emperor's men. So the, the book is about this uh, dilemma that God is not speaking to us regarding the suffering of humanity, even in God's own name. Some years ago, I met a woman in the Philippines who, whose nephew had been kidnapped by some gang, and uh, they was being held for ransom. And she and her family gathered in prayer around the clock, asking knocking on the door, seeking God's mercy and praying for the life of this innocent child. And then when the child uh, was found murdered, not only was the family in herself plunged in grief, but she was also plunged into a crisis of faith rather similar to Father Ferreira. And what she realized, she didn't know, she didn't have an explanation for what, but, but what she knew was that 
Either God did not exist, or the God she had believed in did not exist. And she spoke about this with a friend of hers, and her friend said, well, I don't know how to answer that question about the meaning of suffering, uh, or why your prayer wasn't answered, but all I can say is meditation might help. And so she began to meditate. And what she told me was that meditation didn't give her an answer to the question at the level at which she was asking it, why did God let this happen? But her, her sense, her experience of God was changing. It's a little, well, quite similar in a way to what Simone Weil says about the silence of God. The love which unites Christ, she says, the love which unites Christ abandoned on the cross to his Father at an infinite distance dwells in every saintly soul. So the love that unites Christ on the cross to his Father at an infinite distance, so God, why have you, Father, why have you abandoned me? That that love across the infinite distance dwells in every saintly soul. In such a soul, she says, in such a soul, the dialogue of Christ's cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? The dialogue of Christ's cry and the Father's silence echoes perpetually in a perfect harmony. Now that's not what we perhaps expected to hear, and therefore we have to read it and think about it a few times. So I'm not expecting it to be an answer, but it is a new approach, and for me a convincing approach, to this question that caused Father Ferreira and this woman in the Philippines so much uh, anxiety, so much uh, existential terror, uh, about the silence of God. The character of Father Ferreira is an interesting character. He's a sincere person, he's uh, a good priest, but he likes his, himself as a priest. Talks about him, thinks about himself all the time as a priest and has a certain pride in the role that he performs. So, so might a doctor or a father or a mother or anybody else. But in this story, it's the, it's the self-consciousness and the, the pride, the ego, really, of the priest that is in the spotlight. And I think what one feels at the, as the book uh, comes to its, its sort of soft climax is that uh, it was really not God who was silent that, that he was concerned with. It was his own noisy mind. 
a mind full of this endless, obsessive, or persistent questioning. When will God speak? When will God tell me what this means? When will God reassure me that I'm doing the right thing? Or when will God tell me what to do? That this noisy mind, linked to his own ego, creates a barrier actually to God. So what he is hearing is not, he thinks, the silence of God at all. He's hearing his own noise. And when that noise breaks down, when his ego is broken, when he surrenders, when he, he, he betrays his faith, for, out of compassion for these poor peasants who are suffering, uh, there's just a little glimpse of, that, of the possibility that he hasn't stopped believing in Christ, but that his way of believing has changed. That's what Endo says. So when we speak about the silence of God, we have to, again, be clear whether we're speaking about our imagined silence of God, which is the result of our own noisiness, or whether it is the silence of God that the mystical tradition speaks about, that uh, Meister Eckhart says is uh, like God, nothing is so much like God as silence. For so Simone Weil, attention to music or art or great literature perhaps takes us deeper into the work of silence. She says, we touch the silence of God when we cry out for an answer and it is not given to us. That's not going to sell a lot of seats in churches. <laughs> but isn't that what we should be teaching? We touch the silence of God when we cry out for an answer and it is not given to us. As Jesus did. When we experience the, that the answer is not coming to us in the way we demand it, expect it, or imagine it, then we will either start talking crazily to ourselves, and religious people have a tendency to go a bit crazy, don't they? <laughs> or we start fantasizing conversations, or we let go of ourselves and we drop into silence, we pass into silence. In the Christian mystical tradition there are infinite degrees of silence. We don't just go into the inner room and then it's silent. We are penetrating uh, eternally into 
silence. And as we move into that silence, as we become more silent, as we become more united with the silence, our union with Christ deepens. In the homily for Holy Saturday, from the second century uh, Christian author, Christ is speaking to us, the risen Christ is, is speaking to us, and he says, you and I form one undivided person. That's a great Christian koan. You and I form one undivided person. So the deeper we go into the silence, the deeper our union, the, the fuller, the richer our union with Christ. And what happens when we are united with Christ? <laughs> well, yes. We are united to the Father. We are separate. Sorry? We are united to the Father. We're united to the Father in Christ, yes. We are more deeply united with one We're more deeply united with each other. What does St. Paul say? For anyone who is united with Christ, there is a new creation. What does that mean? So the deeper we go into this silence, into this union with Christ, this is something we experience across the whole spectrum of our lives, not just in our times of meditation. There is a new creation. Is it a new creation or is it a new way of perceiving creation? A new way of seeing and perceiving our relationship to reality. It begins, let's just come back to basics for a moment. It begins with being quiet. This is from the letter of James. When we put a bit into a horse's mouth to make it obey our will, we can direct the whole animal. Or think of a ship, large though it may be, and driven by gales, it can be steered by a very small rudder on whatever course the helmsman chooses. So with the tongue. It is small, but its pretensions are great. What a vast amount of timber can be set ablaze by the tiniest spark. And the tongue is a fire representing in our body the whole wicked world. It can pollute our whole being. It sets the whole course of our existence alight, and its flames are fed by hell. We use it to praise our Lord and Father, then we use it to invoke curses on our fellow men, though they are made in God's likeness. 
Out of the same mouth come praise and curses. This should not be so, my friends. So control the tongue, the first step of our journey into silence. Then we discover, through these infinite degrees of silence, that silence is relational. In other words, it doesn't isolate us as we think it does. If I'm not speaking to you, then I'm not communicating with you. Actually, we know that's not true because we communicate in many other ways apart from speaking. But we discover and we are reassured by discovering that to be truly silent is to be in relationship. And if we are silent with each other and if we are, then we, we realize that our relationship is deepened and transformed by that. We know that through the community that meditation builds in a meditation group or even in a few days like this. It's just that the tongue always wants to run away. So we, if we can't control the tongue, it's not that we can never speak, but if we can't control it, we won't be able to move easily into those deeper levels of silence. Maybe because we don't want to. Maybe because we're frightened of becoming silent. We just want really to be quiet. We just want to be mindful. But maybe also simply because we've got into the habit of it and we don't know how to control and discipline ourselves. So silence is revealed to be relational. And therefore, when we enter into the inner room, we realize that we are in an infinite space in which we are more and more consciously aware of our relationship with everyone and everything. This is an experience, it's an insight, it's an awareness. The idea is easy to, to say, yes, we are in relationship to everything in the world, but to be aware of it would change the way we vote, whether you build walls against the huddled masses, or whether you see that you are in relationship to them. It would undermine and dissolve the prejudices that we grow up with, which we absorb, of course, from a very young age from our environment and our parents and the, our media. So this experience of the inner room has a very powerful transformative effect upon the way we perceive the world. It is the beginning of a new creation. And something that in a globalized world, which has created so many divisions today, has given us so much, but it has also created innumerable divisions and conflicts. So to live in this globalized, conflicted world, it is essential that we rediscover 
this experience of relationship as transcending our own local, racial, class, or denominational boundaries. We have to see the meaning of the story of the Good Samaritan, that our neighbor is who we recognize our neighbor to be, not just the person whose color and educational level or language or background or political opinion gels with ours. Silence is relational because it reveals the relational nature of reality. But before we can enter into that, we have to face and overcome what feels to us like the fear of death. The dread of cosmic isolation, of solitude. We have to overcome that fear before we discover the relational nature of solitude, that it is when we are in solitude, truly and simply ourselves, that we are in relationship. So this is what happens in secret in the inner room. It is secret, it is obvious, but it remains mysterious, a bit like the quantum world, a new creation or life in the spirit, as the New Testament calls it. Modern science has revealed to us a whole dimension of reality that, that uh, has much more to do with the mystical wisdom of the past than it does with Newtonian physics or 19, you know, uh, 19th century uh, science. No one understands quantum mechanics, said the Nobel laureate who was given his, his Nobel Prize for his work on quantum, quantum mechanics. Nobody understands it. In this quantum world, we discover that nothing is certain. The left hemisphere of the brain finds it extremely difficult and irritating and upsetting to live with uncertainty. You would prefer certainty to, uh, to anything else. The right hemisphere of the brain is perfectly happy living with uncertainty because it knows that there's always something, something new that's going to come along. We, it lives in the flow of reality. In the quantum world, we know that there is a huge paradox in measuring anything. We think it's easy to say this is six foot long, but as soon as you measure something, our perception of it changes. And the, and the, 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 the deeper the level at which this measurement happens, uh, the more uh, mysterious uh, it becomes. 
according to the present language of the physicists, as far as I understand it, they say that the only real explanation of this is of parallel universes. That with every measurement, you, every possible alternative measurement you take, there could be a whole parallel universe built upon that possibility. Reality splits into as many parallel worlds as there are ways of measuring or observing it. So, we don't understand it. And St. Augustine said, if you can understand it, it isn't God. So this is the journey we're making into silence. This is the spiritual journey. In fact, this is life as a spiritual journey. And when we start to meditate, when we develop a contemplative practice that we take seriously and make part of our life and come to recognize as a gift in our life, then we become one with that journey. We become one with ourselves on that journey. What's the best way to know that we are making progress? Peace. Peace? Yes, okay. Daily life. Peace in daily life. Stop trying to measure progress. Stop trying to measure progress. We, the fact that we just persevere, we continue, yes. We th- oh, I wonder why I'm still doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Must be something in it. Like a con- conflict, like, like a conflict. How we deal with conflict, yes, yeah. Oh, I see. So, yeah, you're less likely to look for a fight on a Saturday night. You don't go out looking for a fight, yeah. <laughs> Yes, keep coming up with questions. The way that, that we love and how we love. The fact that we love and know that we love and, 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 and the way we love, yes, how we love, yes. Thank you. Yes, looking at scripture in a quite different way. We'll look at this in a minute. Okay, so all these are many ways in which we can say, we can sense, feel, that we can't measure it perhaps, but we we know that we're making progress. I'd only add to that failure. You know, we all want to succeed, don't we? Failure is the worst thing we could do. But actually, the best way that we can know we're making progress is to fail and to know that we're failing and dealing with failure and not being overwhelmed and thrust into despair by failure. Again, think of Jesus on the cross. It wasn't exactly a successful end to his short career, was it? Meditation dissolves the opposition that we are culturally conditioned to accept between success and failure. 
and it transforms it into what we call paradox, like Patricia Ng, moving from panic to peace and discovering that the suffering she'd had was worth the gift that it brought her. We have to let go of the false idea of experience. We have to see through this false idea of experience as if experience were something we have, we hold, or we observe. Experience in meditation is not looking at anything, observing anything, or measuring anything, but it's seeing, just seeing. Maggie Ross has a, uh, speaks about the, the, the meaning of the word behold, as it's often translated in the scriptures. We only, I think we only use it in, uh, do we, we don't use the word behold in anything else, do we really? Well, beholden, yes, it's different, yes. But to behold in the sense of seeing. Uh, in the Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. What did Mary say to the angel? Behold the handmaid of the Lord. The Magi beheld the star that was guiding them. At the baptism of the Lord, behold, the heavens were opened. And strangely, Pilate, at the trial of Jesus, brings him out to show him to the people and says, behold the man, H.A. Homer. So the sense here is that it's about seeing something directly, not refracted by thought, image, belief, or opinion. So we could say, seeing it purely with the right hemisphere or with the contemplative vision or with the eye of the heart. And of course, we then think about that. We then write about it, write a poem about it, write scripture about it even. But as soon as we start to think about it, it becomes what we call an experience, basically a memory, maybe a vivid memory, although all memories fade over time. But in the contemplative vision, there is no memory. Everything is present, so there is no experience. We're not thinking about what happened to us or what might happen to us. This is something of what William Blake means, I think, when he says about the doors of perception. If we could cleanse the doors of perception, we would see things as they truly are, which is what? Infinite. This is purity of heart, one of the Beatitudes. And to behold in this way, or to see in this way, is also to be seen, to be beheld. 
to know that we are known. Because we are no longer standing outside, looking back or looking out or looking in, but we are in the moment. We move towards this state of pure prayer, of contemplation, as in any pilgrimage, by stages. But we are always moving on. We're never clinging to the good or the bad parts of the journey as we might imagine them. This is another essential element of the mystical tradition that Bernard McGinn will be speaking to us about soon. This is how St. Paul puts it in the second letter to the Corinthians. A little passage that's taken up by many Christian mystics ever since. With such a hope as this, we speak out boldly. It is not for us to do as Moses did. He put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at the end of what was fading away. But, as Scripture says, whenever he turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So this refracting thinking about this self-conscious perception is removed. The veil that we feel separates us from reality, which is really the veil of our own self-consciousness. That's removed. When we turn to the Lord, when we see. Now the Lord of whom this passage speaks is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord, there is liberty. And because for us there is no veil over the face, we all see as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Or from glory to glory, is it sometimes? Through the power of the Lord who is spirit. So what he's describing here is his insight into the boundless, this infinite progression of levels of reality, of levels of, 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 uh, of silence. As Gregory of Nyssa takes this up in part of his mystical theology, that we are transformed from glory to glory. There are infinite degrees of perfection. So just when you think you've made it, you've got to let go and move on. Purity of heart and poverty of spirit together. And this eternal progress is the basis of true vision. This is when we see things as they really are, when we are in touch with this reality of eternal progress. And where the vision fails, the people perish. It says in the book of Proverbs. Well, we have to, when we look around our world today, we can see the danger 
of the loss of vision. Perhaps in no small part due to our excessive left, left hemisphere uh, <coughs> orientation, which makes it very difficult for us to see the reality of this infinite progression. We want to build a model and worship the model and measure it and use it to exploit the environment or the poor or any vulnerable people who get in our way. And when the vision, and the Greek word for contemplation is theoria, which also means vision, when the vision fails, the people perish. So in the work of meditation, we are facing first of all, our own huge level of in internalized and inherited noise and our own self-consciousness, the same ego that Father Ferreira had to struggle with. Occasionally, in ordinary life, we lose self-consciousness. In a moment of ecstasy, in a moment of beauty, in the moment of innocence, of joy. We lose self-consciousness when we are absorbed, in other words, when we are wholly attentive, when our complete being is turned towards something other than ourselves. It's rare. We try and pursue that experience through entertainment. Entertainment is a sort of false con contemplation. You know, it gives us a little high, uh, makes us laugh, it makes us cry, it uh, feeds our sadism or our lust. And it promises to give us uh, some kind of uh, uh, experience of uh, uh, where we are completely absorbed. I mean, but uh, it's a drug. And like all drugs, we have to take bigger and bigger doses of it for it to have the desired effect. So entertainment, which is what our culture is, <coughs> has largely become, really, culture of entertainment, uh, is uh, perishing and becoming increasingly self-conscious, increasingly isolated, increasingly painful and confused, and therefore increasingly able to be manipulated and deceived and taken for a ride 
by people who want to do that to us. Now, losing our self-consciousness is a little frightening because it feels like dying, especially if we're really deeply attached to our self-consciousness and our ego and our way of measuring and observing things. To give that up is almost as difficult as turning off our mobile phone in meditation. <laughs> but letting, losing our self-consciousness is not the same as losing consciousness. It's always a bit frightening to, be, uh, to lose consciousness. Some years ago I was having a little, very minor little uh, procedure where I was going to be put out of consciousness for about 10 minutes. And uh, I was quite enjoying it, actually. The, the drug that makes you go <laughs> down. And I thought, oh, I'll hang around at this for a while, I don't mind. <laughs> then the doctor came and uh, said, okay, now I'm going to put you out for about 10 minutes, okay? I said, and I said to him, how long will it take? And he said, don't worry, which is not a good thing to say. He said, don't worry, it's just like falling off the edge of a cliff. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have time, fortunately, <laughs> to worry about that before it took effect. But I thought afterwards, it isn't the, the nicest thing to say to a patient. Anyway, but we're naturally nervous about losing consciousness. But we're not losing consciousness, we're losing self-consciousness. We're not becoming unconscious. Meditation makes us more conscious, more aware, more alert, more intuitive, more perceptive. And we begin to understand what the mind of Christ means. The work of silence is about reduction. We live in a culture that is all about accumulation and increase and having more. That's why it's very difficult for us to understand the real meaning and nature of meditation or the real meaning and nature of silence because we think we should be getting something more out of it because we're putting something into it. We're putting our 20 minutes or half hour into it, therefore we should be getting something out of it. The Buddha was asked at the end of his life, what did you get out of meditation? And he said, nothing, but I lost a lot. Socrates has said, it's reported to have said that the secret of happiness is not found in seeking more, but in developing the capacity to enjoy less. 
And isn't that the only way we can survive on the planet? To reduce our consumption and to enjoy less or to enjoy less more? That's why, it, again, the connection between the inner room and the outer world is much more immediate and powerful than we might think at first. Because what we find in the inner room is not our own little private world, but a new creation, a new way of being and relating to everything. The only thing we have to let go of is our self-consciousness and with it, of course, our left hemisphere compulsion to control and to predict everything. Of course, we have to control and predict up to a point. We don't have certainty about that, but we have probability. So some things we, we think it's... We've got a flight at 3 o'clock. We... we, we we plan and expect that probably we will get to the airport in time if we leave at a certain time. Maybe not, we're never 100% certain, but probably. So it's not that we don't use uh, these common sense ways of living in the world, but that we don't identify with them. And if something goes wrong, and you don't get to the airport, This doesn't cause your world to collapse or for you to become a psychopathic uh, danger to the world. The self-conscious mind has to be open to the fact that it is less pure, less real, less in the flow of reality than the conscious mind. And anyone who meditates by integrating meditating into daily life discovers this. You still function in the world. In fact, you function better. Your feet are on the ground. You make probably better decisions than you would otherwise. But you are not trapped, and because you are not trapped, in the self-conscious mind. Self-conscious mind that wants to accumulate experiences and calls its memories experiences and labels them. In the contemplative mind, that's the mind that we, we enter in the inner room, we're not labeling experience, we are in the experience, we are in the moment, we are in Christ, as Christ is in us. So we'll look uh, 
Maybe at, at Mass we'll, um, we'll take another look when we read the scripture, uh, listen to the scriptures, at how um, this work of silence, which for us is very clearly grounded in the work of the mantra, but how this work of silence can also be advanced and enjoyed by our way of listening to the word of scripture.